Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster HZ or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult the product monograph at gsk.ca slash Shingrix slash PM for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Hey everyone, Alex Chung here, host of the MD Market Watch podcast. What's our show about? That's a great question. We're about helping Canadian physicians and their families achieve their financial goals. And part of that is investment strategy and portfolio management. Want to get up to speed on the latest market events and developments, MD fund and portfolio updates, and where we think things are headed? Our expert contributors break it down and give you all the info that you'll need. Listen to the MD Market Watch podcast today on MD.ca or through your favorite podcast provider. Immunotherapy is an exciting area of cancer research that is changing the way we think about cancer treatment by mobilizing the body's own immune system to attack cancer cells. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are a family of novel therapeutic agents increasingly used in cancer therapy. I'm Dr. Shannon Charlebois, Editorial Fellow for CMAJ. It's my pleasure to be a guest host on CMAJ podcast. I'm joined by Drs. Megan Himmel, Alex Saltman, and Sam Sable. They have co-authored a practice article that outlines how immune checkpoint inhibitors are used in cancer therapy. All three have joined me from Toronto to discuss their article, which is published in CMAJ. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. To start, can you each briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Sure, so I'm Megan Himmel. I'm a PGY4 rheumatology resident at the University of Toronto. Uh, And prior to my medical training, I completed my PhD in experimental medicine at the University of British Columbia. Um, And there I had a focus on T-cell immunology. Hi, I'm uh, Sam Sable. I'm a medical oncologist at the Princess Margaret Cancer Center in Toronto. Um, And I am also a a PhD scientist in the area of uh, T-cell activation and immunometabolism, working with Pam Ohashi and her group at the um, OCI. And I'm Alex Saltman, and I'm the non-scientist in the group. I practice duly as a rheumatologist and a palliative care physician. i also at Princess Margaret Cancer Center and at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. And my interest is in caring for patients who have life-limiting systemic rheumatic disease and patients who have advanced cancers who then develop a new autoimmune disease secondary to some of those cancer treatments, including immunotherapy. I'll say more about that later. Not everyone may be familiar with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Can you explain what they are? Sure. So immune checkpoint inhibitors, as you had mentioned, are a new family of therapeutic agents that are being used in cancer therapy. So to understand immune checkpoint inhibitors, we first need to take a step back. It's important to know that one of the ways that tumor cells actually evade destruction by the immune system is by triggering what's called immune checkpoint receptors. So these receptors, which include things like CTLA-4, PD-1, and PDL one are expressed on T-cells, and when they become activated, they actually act as an off switch for the T-cell. So cancer cells take advantage of this by activating the receptor to turn off the T-cell and prevent their own destruction. So what immune checkpoint inhibitors do are they're monoclonal antibodies that prevent the cancer cell from binding and activating the immune checkpoint receptors on the T-cell surface. So this means that the T-cells remain active and then they can mount an immune response against a cancer cell leading to its ultimate destruction. How are these being used in cancer therapy? So in Canada, there are currently seven immune checkpoint inhibitors that have been approved for use. And so one of them actually targets CTLA-4, that one's ipilimumab. 
three target uh, PDL1, which is atezolizumab, avolumab, and dervalumab. And then there's three that target anti-PD1, which is pembrolizumab, nivolumab, and semiplumab. And so these drugs so far have shown unprecedented and really durable survival benefit in a large range of different types of cancers, including ones that historically have had really poor prognoses or even really limited therapeutic options. This includes advanced metastatic melanoma, and these agents have actually shown very significant promise in this field. Um, there's a lot of other cancers that these drugs are actually being used in in Canada, and so that includes non-small cell lung cancer, renal cell carcinoma, hepatocellular carcinoma, um, and even urothelial cancer, and the indications continue to expand. They're, they're being used both in frontline treatment of cancer in combination with surgery, chemotherapy, and even radiotherapy, but they're also being used in the adjuvant setting to help prevent progression or recurrence of malignancy. So they've really become the first line standard of care in a lot of advanced malignancies over the last several years. ICI seem quite promising. In my former work as a GP oncologist, I've seen patients have some amazing results. What have some of the recent trials shown? Yeah, so I think why we're all so excited about ICI treatment re regimens is that they offer the potential for durable long-term survival and deep responses, which we don't often see with other uh, classes of therapeutics like chemotherapy and even targeted therapies or um, tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So um, I think I'm biased because I treat prominently uh, melanoma, but in the melanoma literature, for instance, one of the uh, seminal trials of immune checkpoint inhibitors shows that by combining a PD-1 inhibitor with a CTLA-4 inhibitor, um, we could actually in, uh, induce a response in greater than 65% of patients with uh, greater than 50% of patients still being alive at five years. Uh, which is quite phenomenal. To put that in a historical context for you, previous to immunotherapy, on most phase two and phase three clinical trials, the uh, pooled five-year survival for metastatic melanoma was somewhere in the range of five to 10%. So that's almost a tenfold increase in overall survival on that trial. And based on that trial, uh, that regimen has now become standard of care across Canada, uh, first line for metastatic melanoma. Similarly, in lung cancer and um, in renal cancer, a combination immune therapy with an anti-PD-1 and an anti-CTLA-4 agent have also shown very impressive data, uh, increasing overall survival uh, compared to standard treatments, be them uh, targeted therapies with uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors or standard chemotherapy. Um, not quite to the same extent as in melanoma, uh, but still quite impressive results in survival. And uh, the list goes on and on um, in other types of cancer where recent trials have shown very uh, promising data for um, these checkpoint inhibitors, including, as Meg mentioned, some pretty bad actor-type uh, cancers, such as small cell lung cancer, which uh, can be quite aggressive, uh, as well as non-small cell lung cancers mentioned before. So we've mentioned several specific types of cancers. Can ICIs be used as therapy for any type? I think the hope is that yes, because in theory, why we like the immune system to fight cancer is that the immune system can go anywhere in the body and hypothetically uh, could infiltrate essentially any uh, tumor in the body. That being said, um, if we look at uh, the early clinical trials and where uh, these agents were being tested early on, there is a huge range of responsiveness to these agents depending on the different types of cancers. For example, you know, the response rates to melanoma can be 40, 50, or over 50% in the combination trials. And in other types of cancers, um, 
for instance, colorectal cancer in most situ situations, the response rates can be less than 5%. So that's obviously a huge range and it tells us there's a huge amount we need to learn both about these agents and the immune system in general to better understand what makes some tumors respond and what makes some tumors quite refractory to these immune stimulatory agents. To that end, one thing that has really fallen out and has been a large advance in the field is that it was discovered that there's a direct correlation between the mutational burden of a tumor i.e. that is how many different mutations arise in the DNA of the tumor per megabase of DNA, uh, with tumors showing high degrees of mutational burdens, showing much more of a uh, tendency to respond to immune checkpoint inhibitors versus tumors with low mutational burdens. Um, as I mentioned, colorectal cancer, which uh, usually has a very low mutational burden, has a response rate to single-agent PD-1 blockade in the range of 5 to 10%. However, uh, it's been found that colorectal cancers that have a um, specific genetic change um, called microsatellite instability, uh, these tumors have a response rate of uh, upwards of 45 to potentially even 50%. So that's been a huge advance and uh, gives us some insight uh, as to why uh, some tumors respond differently. Um, the feeling there being that these high mutational burden tumors have new antigens or new things to show the immune system, but that's not the whole story because there are lots of tumors with high mutational burden that don't respond. Um, interestingly, new factors such as the microbiome, uh, I mean, the microbes that live in your colon, um, potentially also other uh, skin and other um, microbiome reserves in the body seem to highly influence response to these immune checkpoint inhibitors, both in humans and in mouse models. Um, so that's an active area of research and something that's being looked into. But at the end of the day, I think we're appreciating that the immune system is really a symphony. And there's so many players, we're now just trying to figure out which each uh, individual instrument, so to speak, uh, contributes uh, to the immune system and the response to these agents. How is immune therapy different from chemotherapy and other modalities? Yeah, so I think that goes to the core principle of why we're so excited about this, because instead of attacking the cancer directly, which uh, our traditional uh, chemotherapeutic radiation and um, uh, targeted therapies did by trying to induce tumor cell death directly with the agent. These agents act through a third party, which is the immune system. So really what we're trying to do with these agents is reprogram the patient's own immune system to fight the cancer uh, as opposed to directly kill the cancer. And what we know about the immune system in the context of other things such as infectious diseases is that one of the hallmarks of adaptive immunity, which is immunity mediated by T cells, is that you can get long-term protection and potentially even memory, which means cells that live for a long time and will be reactivated every time they encounter the tumor or the infection that they're specific for. So underlying that, what we have seen in early immune therapy trials and uh, which really fueled the field is that the patients that do respond, particularly in uh, tumors like melanoma, there is the potential for long-term durable responses. And what I mean by long-term is many years. As some of the patients from the early uh, immune therapy trials that were conducted around 2010 uh, are still living melanoma-free today, which is very exciting. So I think, you know, it's a different way of dealing with cancer, uh, and uh, it's a very exciting way of dealing with cancer. And what has gotten us very exciting in the field is that it, the potential for these long-term durable responses, or what we like to call the tail of the survival curve, seems to be there when we treat patients with immune therapy, which we traditionally didn't see with uh, other treatment modalities, particularly chemotherapy. What are some things oncologists need to keep in mind when deciding whether or not to choose ICIs for a patient? I think, as Megan alluded to, these agents have really become the standard of care uh, for many cancers. So for a lot of tumors, 
the go-to agent. It's not a choice. It's really they are they have become the standard of care because they've become uh, so effective. That being said, obviously because they do activate the immune system and have a potential to cause autoimmune toxicity, one of the things we do worry about is patients with pre-existing autoimmunity uh, or any other contraindication to immune activation. And this would include uh, patients with solid uh, organ transplant who are on immunosuppression, for instance. So it's always uh, sort of doing that balancing act in terms of um, the potential benefits versus the risks. But in general, for a lot of the tumor types now, ICIs are really the standard of care. And to add to what Sam is saying, I think, you know, from the perspective of a, a rheumatologist, we think a lot about uh, access to these novel therapeutics for patients who have pre-existing autoimmune disease. Um, and this was a, a challenge because the initial trials all excluded patients with pre-existing autoimmune disease. And at the beginning, oncologists were understandably quite nervous about giving patients who had, say, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. Um, at chance at these medications due to fear of, of uh, flaring the underlying disease. And especially in rheumatic diseases that affect end organs, so for example, lupus affecting the kidney, now this can be m- much more serious than swollen joints. Uh, so fortunately, uh, over time, we started to learn that the patients who have well-controlled autoimmune disease, so on treatment um, without a lot of high disease activity, can actually safely receive these medications and often do very well. Uh, Sometimes we require a modification of therapy um, and sometimes patients get new autoimmune side effects um, unrelated to their underlying diagnosis. But as much as possible, we try to give all patients an opportunity to access these drugs and and work collaboratively um, with the different specialties, be it a rheumatologist or say a gastroenterologist if it's underlying inflammatory bowel disease, along with the oncologist to try to optimize the chances of a patient getting this therapy and tolerating it. And then the last comment I'll make, sort of putting on my palliative care doctor hat, um, is that when oncologists are thinking about whether or not to give a patient an ICI, like any other treatment, we want to remember that um, it's important that the patient is fully informed about the risks and the benefits and the alternatives. And I think this is especially important because in the media, there's so much hype uh, about how effective immunotherapy is for cancer that sometimes patients can get the misimpression that these drugs are without side effects, uh, which sadly is not the case. They're just a different sort of side effects uh, than what patients would experience with traditional chemotherapy. And so it's still very important to ensure that patients understand those risks and that that the offer of therapy is in line with what their overall goals uh, would be in terms of their treatment and and the quality and quantity of life uh, endeavors that they're hoping to achieve. So speaking of side effects, what are the possible adverse events that happen with ICIs? And can you explain what happens there? Sure. Um, So as we've alluded to, as uh, the ICIs work by turning on the immune system to fight the cancer, in some instances, their use can actually lead to inappropriate immune activation. And so this results in the development of essentially a de novo autoimmune disease. And we call these immune-related adverse events. They can happen to any organ system from head to toe. And these, these side effects can range from mild, so for example, vitiligo or skin rash or hypothyroidism, uh, to much more severe and sometimes even life-threatening um, when they affect the lungs, causing pneumonitis, the heart causing myocarditis, uh, the gut causing colitis, the liver causing hepatitis, or the muscles causing myositis. Uh, So it's it's quite important for clinicians who are taking care of these patients, not just their oncologists, but also primary care physicians, internists, other specialists, eMERGE physicians, um, to be vigilant to any symptoms that might signal the development of an immune-related adverse event. 
because prompt recognition and treatment are really the key principles of management in order to minimize morbidity and mortality. How are these adverse events managed? So typically these immune-related adverse events are managed with immunosuppression. It depends on the severity of the side effects and we always try to treat locally when we can with tropical therapies, uh, steroid creams for a rash, for example, or intra-articular corticosteroid injections uh, for more localized arthritis. Uh, but when the, the immune-related adverse event is more severe or a patient doesn't respond to a local therapy, then we have to go to systemic immunosuppression, first line with glucocorticoids. And it, when it's a life-threatening side effect, like colitis or pneumonitis, these patients usually have to be hospitalized for IV pulse steroids. The immunotherapy can be continued when the immune-related adverse event is mild and easy to treat. Uh, but when these patients are sicker with severe or life-threatening immune-related adverse events, then we have to stop ICI therapy, at least temporarily and sometimes, unfortunately, even permanently. And then in patients who don't respond to initial glucocorticoids or who respond at the beginning with high doses but have difficulty papering off the steroids, then sometimes we have to add steroid-sparing agents. Uh, many of the drugs that we use in rheumatology uh, to treat our autoimmune or connective tissue diseases are the drugs that we, we then reach for in collaboration with the oncologist to try to manage the adverse events and spare steroid uh, going forward. And of course, the challenge here is to balance managing the immune-related adverse event with the risk of accelerating the cancer or uh, worsening progression or bringing back cancer that is quiescent. And this is one of the challenges I deal with every day in my clinic where I see a lot of these patients and it's a constant push-pull uh, to manage immune-related adverse events while what I tell my patients is I respect the cancer. And so we have to always try to minimize uh, the chances that we will uh, worsen a malignancy that is quiescent or stable. Um, and I have lots of conversations uh, with oncology colleagues like Sam uh, every single day to talk about what, what's the best drug regimen, how can we get away with local therapies, can we inject joints, um, what medications can we use that will be safest um, to, to both maximize quality of life but also not compromise quantity of life. And, and to uh, Alex's point there, I think that, you know, from my own practice, I always mention to uh, patients who are starting immunotherapy that they have to uh, remind any physician that they encounter that they are um, being treated with immunotherapy because one of the challenges in managing the adverse events of patients uh, who are receiving these agents is that they can induce very nonspecific symptoms, uh, which are a sign of a very specific pathology. Prime example of this is that we've had some patients present with very uh, vague symptoms of some mild fatigue, nausea, and vomiting to a, an emergency department uh, where they were quite appropriately uh, diagnosed as uh, most likely a gastroenteritis, given some intravenous hydration and sent home because they failed to mention that they were receiving an immune checkpoint inhibitor. However, uh, unfortunately, these patients actually were manifesting a, a fairly rare complication of hypophysitis and were actually adrenally insufficient. But, um, you, you know, it's probably not standard practice in most emergency departments to order a cortisol on every patient with a two-day history of nausea and vomiting. So I think this is sort of illustrative of how, how the very specific immune-related uh, toxicities of these agents uh, can present in very mundane ways, but do require uh, consultation with an oncologist or a um, specialist sometimes to make sure that appropriate monitoring and testing is done uh, for these patients who are on treatment. 
these complications and toxicities are becoming ever increasingly complex and um, require really multidisciplinary care. And as the oncology team has, has been learning very rapidly, um, rapid consultation with multiple different experts, uh, particularly uh, experts who use a different armamentarium of drugs other than corticosteroids has become very important in the management of these patients because um, you know, the goal is to minimize uh, the exposure to immunosuppression as quickly as possible. And that's really done best in a multidisciplinary team a lot of the time. What are some of the next steps in terms of research or trials in Canada? So as I, I've alluded to a few times, it seems that combination immune therapy, very similarly to early development of chemotherapy with multi-drug regimes, seems to be more effective than single agent uh, immune therapy for a lot of cancers. That being said, it comes with the trade-off of greatly increased toxicities uh, with most of our combination immunotherapy regimes where we're combining these two different checkpoint inhibitor classes that we have, the PD-1 or PDL one drugs with the CTLA, anti-CTLA-4 drug. So in the pipeline of a lot of drug companies and um, pharma companies is multiple new checkpoints, so new checkpoint inhibitors targeting new inhibitory molecules uh, on, on, on immune cells. And so there are a lot of novel combinations coming out where we're combining a new checkpoint inhibitor with uh, an existing one, usually one of the PD-1 axis. Uh, and similarly, we're now trying to expand the roles of um, conventional therapies, be it chemotherapy or um, targeted therapies or protein tyrosine kinase inhibitors uh, to combine these with um, immune therapies to see if, if we can come up with higher uh, response rates. And there's been some very um, exciting preliminary data, particularly coming out of uh, lung cancer, where combining conventional chemotherapy with uh, checkpoint inhibitors seems to be increasing uh, progression-free survival and hopefully overall survival for patients. So it seems that um, that really is uh, the wave of the future, these novel combinations. But as sort of a caveat to that uh, also is that this is these drugs are really a testament to the rapid translation from the lab uh, to the clinic because the basic science has really been outstripped by the clinical science in the sense that we're still learning more and more about how these uh, drugs work and which cells of the immune system they're affecting. And so part of the research going forward also will probably be coming up with novel biomarkers as well as um, patient uh, genetic uh, or potentially even microbiological uh, criteria, which will guide us as to uh, which is the best immune therapy regimen to match for that particular patient as opposed to a one-size-fits-all approach. And just to add, from the perspective outside of oncology, so for subspecialists, including rheumatologists, there's a lot of opportunity to help characterize some of the adverse immune events that we're seeing with these medications. Um, as uh, Sam and Alex have mentioned, um, they can affect uh, any organ system. And so you'll find that a lot of the subspecialists um, across the different organ systems have encountered adverse events. And so even just describing the types of events we see uh, is still an important point in research. And there's active publications, case reports, and case series around uh, different um, phenomenon that are being seen with these medications. And just from the trainee perspective, there's also a lot of opportunity to get involved with research when it comes to immune checkpoint inhibitors and also to the adverse events. Um, because often we're the ones that encounter these patients in the clinical setting in our training formats. And so uh, it's a really great opportunity to be able to observe some of the things that have been going on with these patients and learning how to manage them. There's also a lot of room when it comes to the management of adverse events. There's a lot of research going on as to what the best way to manage the events are. So 
classically we've been using a lot of steroid. However, as we move away from steroid, knowing that it may contribute to disease progression um, in some way, we're looking to other drugs that may help. And so there's opportunity, for example, for clinical trials that look at alternative therapies and steroid sparing therapies. So there's room to get involved with that as well. Thank you for helping CMAJ listeners and readers stay current with this really exciting class of therapeutic agents. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. I've been speaking with doctors Megan Himmel, Alex Saltman, and Sam Sable. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcast on SoundCloud or a podcast app, and let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Shannon Charlebois, Editorial Fellow for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.